The American POTUS Podcast is a 501c3 nonprofit show supported by listener patriots just like you. To help us keep the program going, please join others around the nation by considering a tax-deductible donation. You can make your contribution and see what exciting plans we have for new podcasts and other outreach programs at AmericanPOTUS.org. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy this episode. On this episode of American POTUS, Barack Obama. Out of a complicated family childhood, he would find the passion and purpose to help others in Southside Chicago. As his political career gained momentum, he was invited to take the stage at the 04 DNC convention, igniting a national obsession with his fresh look of optimism and hope. He went on to become president, not only changing national policies, but how we ultimately looked at ourselves. No drama, Obama. How Barack Obama grew up to become the nation's first African-American president. That's next on American POTUS. I'm Scott Brunn. With the help of presidential scholar Alan Lowe, we're opening the book on the men who have held our nation's highest office. In each episode, we'll tap into our nationwide cabinet of historians, authors, experts, and others to reveal the most compelling moments from these extraordinary patriots. To help us understand the man who would become our 44th POTUS is Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer David Garrow. He has not only written several best-selling books about some of the most important moments in our history, he's also been published in several leading newspapers, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. The book on President Obama that we want to get into is titled Rising Star, The Making of Barack Obama. We will link to this and all of David's work on our AmericanPOTUS.com website. David, we're honored to have you join us today on American POTUS. Welcome. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be with you. David, I really enjoyed Rising Star. Let's, let's start at the beginning. Uh, Obama once said that he had spent his childhood adrift. Could you tell us about the challenging circumstances, the very challenging circumstances of his early years? The challenging aspect of Barack's childhood was that his father, African from Kenya, uh, was entirely absent, um, had left Hawaii to go first to Harvard and, and then back to Kenya. Um, and his mother was uh, something of, a, of an Asian, Southeast Asian uh, world traveler. Uh, she remarried to an Indonesian graduate student whom she'd met in Hawaii. And so Barack had several years during his, his elementary school time um, of living in, in Jakarta, uh, the capital of Indonesia. But his mother, uh, Ann Dunham, uh, rightly made the decision as elementary school was ending that Barack would be better off uh, getting an education in the U.S. And so he was sent back to Hawaii, to Honolulu, uh, where his grandparents, Ann's uh, mother and father, lived. And through a family connection, his granddad, uh, Stan Dunham, uh, got got him admitted to the best prep school uh, in Hawaii, Punahou School. And Barack had a, a superb academic exposure there at Punahou. It was a very multi-ethnic culture. Hawaii uh, uh, in the 1960s was arguably the least racist place in the United States. And so Barack, uh, his parental circumstances notwithstanding, actually had a upper middle class and and certainly in educational terms highly privileged childhood. 
Now, when he made the move after Hawaii, he, he went to Occidental College and then made the move to Columbia University. And there you saw, and you, you showed this very, very um, well in your book, that, that he attained what he called a seriousness of purpose when he got to Columbia. What, what led to that transformation, and how was it manifested at Columbia University? Both at Punahou, uh, you know, for high school and his first two years of college at Oxy, um, in the uh, northeastern part of Los Angeles, Barack was something more of a of a party guy than a serious student. But he transferred from from Occidental after his sophomore year, in in largest part because his best friends at Oxy were all you know two years or so ahead of him and were graduating and, and leaving. And Occidental at that time was a very small, intimate place where everyone knew everyone else's business. Um, and so the the decision to to transfer to Columbia University in New York City, uh, he wasn't alone. One of his good friends, Phil Berner, did the same thing at the same time. was a was a move to a, a bigger place, a big city. And indeed, once he's he's situated there in Manhattan, Barack does become much more serious, uh, particularly about reading. Is it just him growing up, or was there some event that led to that that transformation? I think it's very much just growing up. I don't think there's a single event that triggers that. Um, He's already in New York uh, when he learns that his father uh, has died in in a traffic accident in Kenya. And while he certainly experiences grief over the entirely absent father, whom he met only for uh, a week or so when he was uh, 10 years old, that itself is, is not a, a mm-hmm. any sort of life trigger for uh, for Barack. I see. Well, we know that his initial work post-Columbia uh, in Chicago, in New York and in Chicago, was focused on community organizing. So what did that work entail? Barack's first job after he graduated from Columbia uh, was spending a year at a a business publication on the east side of Manhattan where he had a, a sort of mm-hmm. boring office job. Right. <laughs> um, and that led him to, to want to do something more community-oriented. He had a brief stint uh, working for a, a Ralph Nader-type group, New York Perg, at the old city college campus. Um, but he answered an, an ad in a, in a community organizer's journal in 1985 for a job in Chicago and was hired. And so he put all his uh, earthly possessions in his somewhat rattle-trap little-used car that he <laughs> just bought and spent two days driving uh, from Manhattan uh, to, to Hyde Park, Chicago. And I think in, in any wide-ranging look at, at Barack's life, that event, that drive, uh, leaving New York behind and, and making this move to Chicago where he knew literally no one other than the older white guy who'd interviewed him for the job, I mean, that is the launch of Barack Obama into real adulthood. Mm-hmm. Is that the, the trip where he met the fellow at the hotel and had the conversation, uh, Joe Elliott? Oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the motel owner uh, uh. A little bit north of here, uh, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. um, up on the interstate north of here, just east of the Ohio line. Um, it, it was uh, a great piece of fun for me, thanks to one of our law librarians here at the University of Pittsburgh Law School, to track down and call the fellow who'd actually owned that motel and, and talk to him about the conversation he had with Barack 
which Barack had had memorialized in his journal and and would reference more than once in in subsequent years. In, in Chicago, what what kind of work did he do? as a community organizer. What Barack's group was doing was faith-based or congregation-based organizing in the far south side neighborhoods, predominantly black by that time, but, but not totally so, that had been most economically devastated by the collapse of the steel industry in, in the Illinois, Indiana, Gary, Indiana area. And most of the churches that Barack's group were working was working with were Roman Catholic. So Barack was thrown into a situation where, for the first time in his life, he's interacting with uh, working class or lower middle class, I guess would be the technical phrase. And it was a very rapid growing up experience for Barack, but it was also his first real exposure to black America and black Americans' lives. Interesting. And he he certainly uh, proved himself there very quickly, but he made a decision to go to Harvard Law School and is elected president of the Harvard Law Review, a very prestigious position. What did that role reveal about his leadership abilities? The defining figure in Chicago during Barack's three years there was Harold Washington, the first black mayor of Chicago, a a somewhat outsized personality. And Mayor Washington had gotten a law degree, run for the state legislature, you know, then become mayor. And so there's no question that the the example of Washington, you know, taking a a law degree and, and using that as a pathway into electoral politics was certainly a factor, maybe a significant factor in Barack's mind. And in addition, the decision to go to Harvard uh, and turn down a, a full scholarship to Northwestern Law School there in Chicago may have had a, a clear echo with his father going to Harvard, getting a master's degree, but not finishing the doctorate that uh, he had hoped to, to, to win. For the law review, I mean, once Barack is at Harvard Law School starting in 1988, literally from day one, every one of his classmates, really without exception, views him as an exceptional intellect and and personality. I located and, and interviewed hundreds, literally several hundred people who were at Harvard Law School during his time there fellow classmates, faculty members, and, and the consistency, you know, almost unanimity with which they describe Barack's presence, that's what makes it no surprise that after he's, you know, on the staff of, of the law review, which is a, a big deal uh, at a top law school like that, given how everyone's already thought of him throughout his first year and a half, almost two years in the law school, it's really no surprise at all that he would be elected president, i.e. editor-in-chief, uh, of the Law Review. Now, during his summer, uh, working in Chicago at the law firm Sidley Austin, he met Michelle Robinson. Uh, tell us about Michelle's background and how she and Barack became a couple. Michelle was quintessential working-class black Southside Chicago. She and her older brother, Craig, been been raised by two really impressive, hardworking parents. Her dad had had a, a debilitating illness uh, for a good number of years. 
but they nonetheless managed to get both Craig and Michelle to Princeton University. Man from Princeton, Michelle herself had, had gone to Harvard Law School just before Barack, so they hadn't overlapped there. But at Sidley, which is which was and is a, a major important Chicago law firm, Michelle was assigned as as Barack's uh, mentor for the summer and was initially uh, uh, very uncomfortable with with uh, Barack flirting with her and wanting to go out. But there's no question that that Barack saw in Michelle the sort of grounding in black Chicago, you know, that he had first experienced during his community organizing work. And it was very attractive to him because he knew absolutely that he wanted to go back to Chicago after Harvard with a political career in mind. Mm -hmm. There's a funny scene in your book where they're starting to date. They go to a movie and they... They see someone from the law firm there. Is that right? If I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah, they're very, very anxious about that. So uh, while at Harvard, you said, you know, people recognized his intelligence, certainly his charisma. He received a contract while at Harvard to write a book that was eventually published as Dreams from My Father. So how did that book and his later book, The Audacity of Hope, help advance his political career? When Barack was elected to the presidency of the Law Review, the Boston Globe, the New York Times, Vanity Fair, uh, all covered it as a news story. And so he was then approached uh, by a literary agent with the idea of, uh, you know, could he use that as a launching pad to doing a book? And the original idea, uh, which he focused on for several years, uh, would have been a more policy-oriented book. Um, indeed, Barack and his best friend, close, close friend in law school, Robert Fisher, during their third year, final year of law school, together wrote two long seminar papers, um, basically a, a hundred pages apiece, which Rob and his family wonderfully saved. And that was Barack's initial focus. But over time and, and working, again, most closely with Rob Fisher, the idea for the book moves towards a, a more personal autobiographical telling of, of Barack's own life up through his years organizing on the South Side. As you said, he longed for a political career, started thinking about a political career, and he ran for the Illinois Senate in 1996 successfully. How did he perform in Springfield? That is a challenging place, to say the least. And what were his main priorities there? Uh, Barack lucked out because in the complicated nature of Chicago politics, uh, the incumbent state senator uh, had decided she would run for a congressional seat and, and give up her place in the legislature. And so essentially handed that off to Barack and through some classic Chicago checking of nominating petitions, Barack ends up running for this state Senate seat basically unopposed and, and goes down to Springfield starting at the beginning of 1997. Now, the Illinois State Senate at that time was not only Republican-controlled, uh, but the Republicans who controlled it were extremely conservative, you know, more conservative than, than much of what we, you know, see, say, in the U.S. Congress at present or in recent times. Uh, but Barack made himself a success in Springfield by energetically reaching across the aisle to deal 
uh, with these conservative Republicans in very good personal terms. And despite being uh, in the minority up until 2003, he, he registered as a, a very successful uh, legislator. Uh, then when the Democrats, after the uh, reapportionment in 2000, uh, 2001, took control of the state Senate in, in 2003, Barack and his, his mentor there, the Senate leader, Emil Jones Jr., Barack really went to town, you know, putting up a, a significant set of, of uh, uh, policy enactment achievements, particularly around criminal justice reform, that really, you know, marked him as, as a success. And he also had been quite assiduously, thanks to his, his chief aide, a, a white guy named Dan Showman, uh, had spent lots of time traveling around Illinois. And as uh, Senator Jones, uh, his mentor, <laughs> once said very insightfully, very humorously, and I, this is close to an exact quote, but I probably won't get it word for word, you know, outside Chicago, there's this big place called Illinois. Right. <laughs> you know, it's not majority black, and it's a long way down to Cairo, uh, way south of Springfield. Mm-hmm. Uh on the river. But Barack got himself all around the state and had a real friendship network uh, of other legislators, some of them reasonably conservative white Democrats. Uh, Denny Jacobs, a good example uh, from, the, from the Quad Cities area in, in uh, western Illinois. And so uh, uh, all of those years in Springfield uh, from 97 through 2003 were a a real uh, stellar success for Barack. Now, after an unsuccessful attempt at the U.S. House, he ran for the U.S. Senate. In 2004, while he was running for the Senate, he was asked to give the keynote speech at the Democratic National Convention. I think that's a speech um, many, many of our listeners will remember, a very historic speech that, as you say in the title of your book, made him a, a rising star. What made that speech so effective and impactful? Uh, Barack was extremely fortunate in winning the Democratic nomination for this U.S. Senate seat that had, had come vacant thanks to the retirement of, of the Republican incumbent. And the leading Democratic challengers at the outset, you know, both sort of faded from the picture. And so come March of, of 2004, Barack won a majority of the vote statewide uh, in a multi-candidate race. Uh, and again, in a state that, you know, outside of, of Cook County is not uh, in any way heavily African-American. Then after the nominations are, are resolved, uh, the Republican nominee self-destructs uh, thanks to a family scandal. And so six months before the election, Barack is, is looking at a sort of clear path to office once again. That context is, is what leads John Kerry, the Democratic 2004 presidential nominee, to select this, you know, upcoming, uh, you know, virtually certain, you know, rookie, new rookie U.S. senator, you know, who is, you know, biracial, black, to give the keynote speech at the summer Democratic National Convention. And that speech, which was very much a, a denunciation of, of harsh partisanship and an endorsement of, of uh, America coming together, uh, a rejection of just thinking about red states and blue states, it was a very 
uplifting, optimistic, energetic address that was a, a stellar, uh, remarkable oratorical performance. Yeah, really remarkable speech. When he entered the Senate in 2005, what were his priorities and how did he perform as a U.S. senator? Barack once again reached out very purposely in a bipartisan way, particularly to, to Indiana Republican uh, Senator Dick Lugar, very moderate Republican, who had a, a special focus on the decommissioning of dangerous old nuclear weapons in what was left of, of the Soviet Union at that time. And so Barack you know, did a sort of tour of the ex-Soviet states with Senator Lugar. He also took a special interest in Darfur, a region in, in East Africa uh, where there had really been genocide practiced uh, against one part of the population. You know, this was not a, an issue that was getting widespread you know, attention in U.S. newspapers, though uh, human rights advocates like Samantha Power had, had written very powerfully about it. And so again, Obama you know, demonstrates that he's a, you know, serious policy legislator and and not a particularly partisan one. How how against the odds was he able then to defeat Hillary Clinton in 2008 for the Democratic presidential nomination? I think most people uh, would have said that she was perhaps unbeatable in that nomination that year going into it. Barack had had said for a good many months uh, in 2006 you know, that he would absolutely not run for the presidency in, in 2008. But when his second book, which you, you mentioned earlier, The Audacity of Hope, when that came out in, in the fall of 2006, you know, Barack did a lot of, you know, sort of media tour appearances to promote that, you know, is asked on, on Meet the Press if, if the response to him and his growing popularity was was making him, you know, rethink his his denial. And he quite honestly said, yes, he he was starting to rethink his denial. And there's no question that when he makes the decision to go ahead with a presidential run at the end of 2006, you know, viewed as extremely uphill in in uh, challenging Hillary Clinton, you know, but but a year later, uh, when the first of the of the 2008 primary co- contests happens the Iowa caucuses in in early 2008 and Barack you know defeats Hillary Clinton there um in again what is you know very heavily predominantly white and and not terribly liberal state now after that they sort of slugged it out throughout the the ensuing slate of primaries across the the spring of of 2008 with Barack really winning the contest for delegates uh, in a very close count, state after state after state. But I think without question, it was that triumph of a black man in heavily white Iowa that sent the message uh, nationwide uh, that he could win. Was it just his message there? Was he better organized? What, what, What explains that victory, do you think? think part of it was the baggage that Hillary Clinton inescapably carried going back to the uh, Clinton administration in the 1990s. But Barack was a, a new, fresh face, extremely well-spoken, a very energetic campaigner. So when he enters office, let's look first at his domestic accomplishments. What, what do you believe were the most significant ones on the domestic arena? And where do you believe he fell short of his initial promise on the domestic front? 
if listeners can, who are old enough can remember back to that election night in November 2008 when, when you know, Barack won the presidency and the huge ceremony in, in Grant Park in, in downtown Chicago that was his victory rally, uh, the expectations for the Obama presidency you know, in that run-up to when he takes office in, in January of 2009, uh, were just astronomical, both in terms of policy change, uh, but also the symbolic meaning uh, of, of heavily white America uh, having elected an, an African-American president. And so the, the climate of expectations that Obama starts out with is, is just off the charts. And he has a you know economic crisis that he's facing you know with the the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the other attendant dangers that had had dominated the fall of 2008 the early months of 2009 they enact a recovery stimulus program that I think in retrospect most people feel was a little too modest and then he makes a, a major investment in healthcare reform which to a significant degree falls short and in the end succeeds only because of of some very significant concessions that he makes to the insurance industry on the foreign policy front just in general how would you define his approach to foreign policy and what were his greatest successes and failures in that arena i think as the last Four or five years have gone by, certainly among mainstream, not ideological foreign policy commentators, the verdict on the Obama foreign policy record has turned increasingly critical and increasingly negative. And there's always been bipartisan discomfort and, and disappointment with Obama's failure to act in Syria when the Assad dictatorship started using chemical weapons against purely civilian populations. Obama had said that that was a, a, quote, red line, and that if Assad crossed it, there would be U.S. military action. But when that came to pass, Obama stepped back and, and backed away. And I think that's widely viewed as, as the greatest negative of his presidency. Uh, similarly, or, or to some degree in contrast, when the United States did intervene militarily in Libya to help with the overthrow of, of the wacky dictator Muammar Gaddafi, at the time, that was viewed as, as a success. But as the years passed and Libya devolved into a, a failed state, there too, the, the verdict has turned fairly negative. I think it is the uh, the hardest job in the world for sure. So certainly being the first African-American elected to the presidency, uh, an enormous historic uh, accomplishment. How would you describe at the end of the day President Obama's impact on issues of race and equality in America? I think perhaps the number one thing that has to be said about the Obama presidency was how deeply disappointed much of black America ended up being with his record and with his reluctance, I, I think an understandable reluctance, to define himself as a black president or as especially interested in, in black issues. You know, he got some uh, real flack early on in his presidency when he commented on a, a 
police officer uh, uh, detaining a, a friend of his. And so the fear that's, that's in the Obama uh, political operation about him being perceived as too black by white voters, that comes at the cost of, of alienating a lot of, of uh, black intellectuals, black academics, black writers. You know, in, in somewhat surprising contrast to the great celebration at, at the end of 2008 when he's elected, there develops a, a real ambivalence uh, across black America, you know, with a mixture of, of great pride at, at what a wonderful family, you know, his two daughters, you know, it, it's a picture perfect, you know, integration uh, of the White House in family terms. But you read, you know, black commentators, black critics, writings these last years about the Obama presidency, and there too it, it turns more and more critical. All right, David. Now I have a few short questions that will hopefully give us a deeper look into the personal, maybe private side of POTUS 44. Sound good? Yes. All right. Who would you say was his favorite president? Oh, without question, Abraham Lincoln. Good choice. Um, you know, that had a, a you know great political utility to him, you know, Lincoln being from Illinois, indeed Lincoln being oh, from right. Springfield. Yeah. And it, it, it allowed him again to, to cross the aisle and, and uh, celebrate a Republican. You know, Obama also a number of times made positive comments about, about Ronald Reagan's uh, relative success as, as a Republican president. Now, you just talked about the kind of picture-perfect family image at the, at the White House. So my question, what kind of father-husband would you say he is? Is he a hands-on, I'll-do-the-dishes kind of guy, or is he more of a family taskmaster? Barack had such a busy life once he went to Springfield in, in 1997. I mean, that's a you know three-hour commute. He's down there at least from Monday night, you know, through Thursday. He's also, you know, teaching a good bit at the University of Chicago Law School, an excellent classroom teacher by all uh, student accounts. But I think without any question, Barack's role as a husband and father and family man is the uh, strongest, most unchallengeable part of his of his life story. And in that regard, uh, he, he, you know, was, you know, a model, certainly, uh, you know, during his years in the White House. His favorite sport certainly seems to be basketball, famously looking for any opportunity to have a pickup game during his presidency. Now, did he grow up playing the game or was he active in other childhood sports? He became very devoted to playing basketball during his high school years uh, at Punahou in Hawaii. He was, you know, not a starter, but sort of like the sixth man person uh, on the Punahou varsity team. So, you know, he loved it, but he, he wasn't as good as he hoped to be. And so he, he never, you know, he never plays basketball in college. Having spent a few years in Springfield, it's kind of like Washington slept here. Everyone will say they played basketball with Obama while he was in a, it can't be possible. I don't think, I guess maybe, but a lot of people will say, oh yeah, I used to go play with Barack. Now in our episode about presidential authors with Craig Fairman, we discussed what a bookworm Obama is, especially compared to many other presidents. So 
Where did this come from? Was this a trait handed down from his mother or his grandparents? No, Barack, as we touched on earlier, Barack really begins reading seriously during his final two years of college when he's, he's living in Manhattan and going to Columbia. Um, and the vast majority of his reading, both then and in all subsequent years, was very heavily weighted towards fiction uh, rather than nonfiction. Now, in those two long Harvard Law School uh, seminar papers that he and Rob Fisher wrote that, that I mentioned earlier, the one of those on race, he clearly uh, had read the standard 1980s works on the civil rights movement, both my biography of Dr. King, Bearing the Cross, and my earlier book on the FBI's harassment of King were both cited in that paper and, and Alvin Morris's book on the origins of the civil rights movement. But again and again, if you follow Barack's interest in writers, it's, it's very fiction-oriented, and that's the sort of voice that we see him him developing and using in Dreams from My Father. It's, it's a you know very much a novelistic book where there are composite characters and most everyone's names are changed and things uh, you know don't necessarily happen in in uh, actual chronological order now his nickname no drama obama is certainly well earned but has he ever had moments where he may have lost his cool that you know of there's really only one and in springfield back at the time it was it was very famous notorious one of his most unpleasant critics was a fellow black state senator from Chicago, from the West Side, a fellow named Ricky Hendon, uh, whose, whose nickname in black Chicago was Hollywood Hendon. Now, Senator Hendon, former Senator Hendon, was uh, not tall, indeed, probably, uh, I'd say, six inches or so shorter than Obama. But Hendon uh, would pick on Obama mercilessly, you know, and, and tease him as, as being, you know, too white. And once on the Senate floor, you know, Hendon finally went too far and, and Barack really lost it. And several staff members and other senators had to physically separate them to keep them from, uh, from coming to blows. That remained a, a, a sore point. Um, with with Obama. One of the staff members told me years later that she remembered Barack confessing that if he and Hendon had uh, uh, really gotten into it, that he, Barack, uh, would have gotten his uh, posterior kicked. (laughs) Um, And when... uh, when President Obama read my my manuscript, he read most of Rising Star in typescript, you know, in the White House. And we sat down there just off the Oval Office, you know, to go through his, you know, his comments and, and uh, criticisms. That 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 Senate staff member's memory of, of him saying that he would have lost to <laughs> Senator Hendon was uh, one one factual thing that he very much wanted to disagree with. <laughs> Understandably so. I get it. So finally, David, do you have a favorite quote of his, something that stands out to you? I'm, I'm afraid uh, I, I actually don't. You know, he's got a, a good ability as, as a joke teller, you know, and a good sense of humor. But I think for most people, it would be some of the lines from that 2004 Democratic National Convention speech that, you know, 
there's not a, you know, red America or blue America, you know, that that appeal to the the best nonpartisan identity of the American people. I think it's that speech that, you know, will always most resonate. You know, David, I was wondering now that Joe Biden is our president, the vice president for Barack Obama, what's their relationship like? What was it like then? What's it like now? Barack was was exceptionally good at encouraging Vice President Biden to take a full role in the administration. Vice President Biden was not hesitant to disagree in private with President Obama. As is widely known, Vice President Biden opposed the special forces raid that succeeded in in killing uh, Osama bin Laden, uh, which I think many people would cite as, as an Obama uh, presidential achievement, and and so Biden was a, a you know consistent participant player in the administration. I'm certainly not of the impression this past nine or ten months that they're speaking uh, you know much at all person to person here in 2021. And and David, we we really enjoyed this book. What what's coming up next? What are you working on? Oh, nothing. I mean, I'm coming up on age 69. Good for you. Doing doing a book like that or Bearing the Cross or my big book on Roe v. Wade, Liberty and Sexuality, one, it, it is in, incredibly draining and exhausting. I still keep up 100% with, with abortion litigation. And so, you know, anyone reading the, uh, you know, seeing the news, you know, these recent weeks, um, I'm spending... Uh, <laughs> a good portion of my time reading uh, appellate court, Supreme Court filings in the uh, upcoming uh, cases uh, from Texas and, and Mississippi. Well, David, again, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you had a good time on American POTUS. We appreciate you. No, thank you. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the American POTUS podcast. We'd like to thank Pulitzer Prize-winning biographer David Garrow for joining us on this episode about Barack Obama. More information on all of his books can be found on AmericanPOTUS.com. If you have questions on this episode or ideas for future topics, you can easily send us a note on AmericanPOTUS.com, Facebook, or Twitter. We would also appreciate you taking the time to provide a positive rating and review on the player you're listening to right now. And if you're new to American POTUS, please check out the 60-plus episodes that are available in the playlist, covering the presidents and the presidency from the very beginning. Graphic design for American POTUS is by The Thought Bureau, an original music score by Jonathan Clark Music. Finally, it's our presidential last word from Barack Obama, quote, If you're walking down the right path and you're willing to keep walking, eventually you'll make progress.